Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us today as Pastor Kevin Dibley brings us a series, Gospel Friendships, Finding Joy and Resilience Through Deeply Devoted, Christ-Centered Friendships. One of the greatest gifts of the Christian life is the gift of gospel friendship. We were not made to live this life alone and being faithful to Christ in a world of sin, hardship, and disappointment is challenging to say the least. The Apostle Paul writes to the Church of Philippi to express his great joy in their deep friendship and sacrificial partnership in his life and ministry. He writes them not only to thank them, but also to encourage them to not let their dedication to one another waver. One of the great joys of being a Christian is having other Christians in your corner helping you live for and to love Christ supremely. During this study, we're going to look at Paul's friendship letter to the Philippians and we're going to learn what real gospel friendships look like. Do you want a good gospel friend? Are you willing to be one? Let's worship together. I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to uh, the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1. And uh, I'm just going to grab my stand here. So I always have these curious moments while I'm worshiping. Uh, I take great pleasure in God's providence. So I, I don't know if the worship team, Kristen, when they were planning that, chose that song because we're studying Philippians, but I am really curious. Be- no, great. <laughs> because um, I love how the Lord arranges things. While we're singing that song, you know, in the back of my mind as we're beginning a new series in the book of Philippians, the thought that went through my head was, that Philippians, the church at Philippi, one of the stories in Acts chapter 16, uh, in, the, in the story of the conversion of the first Christians at Philippi was Paul and Silas singing in the dark in prison. And so we just sang a song about singing in the dark and the joy of the Lord being my strength. And so, you know, I, I wondered as I was reflecting on that what that was like for everybody else in the prison. It was dark, it was night, um, they were falsely accused because they had, well, they had interrupted the business trade of some men who were using a young girl who was demon-possessed, and she kept falling around saying, these men are prophets of the living God, <laughs> and, and kept doing it such that Paul cast the demon out of her, and then, of course, they weren't too happy, and Paul and Silas end up in prison, but they're singing in prison as if you have read that story, you will know in Acts chapter 16, there's an earthquake. And uh, when the, the gates are opened and when the Philippian jailer discovers that all the gates are open, he actually takes his sword to kill himself. So you know what it was like for him, the responsibility he had. And, you know, if you have stress on your job, <laughs> imagine the stress of knowing that if you don't do this right, it costs you your life. And then, of course, the singers are still in the cells. (laughs) They're still in the prison cell, and they call him not to take the end of his life. And so he says the words, what must I do to be saved? And Paul shares the gospel, and he and his whole household come to faith. That's early Philippians. That's the church. That's the gospel. So isn't that a glorious thought just to say, say that sometimes 
the way evangelism works is when you're being treated unjustly and life is not going well, you sing in the shadows, the joy of the Lord is my strength. And that singing in the shadows was powerful when the Holy Spirit came and did God's work. So that, that, that could be your sermon today before we even jump into the book of Philippians. So just enjoy that. I appreciated singing that song. I, just, I sang it all the more as I had that in my mind this morning as we were singing together. So I'm going to start a new series in the book of Philippians. I'm going to read the first couple of verses, just the intro verses, give you a little intro to the whole letter this morning. And, uh, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to just plant my flag immediately as we're reading so you know where we're headed over the next hundred years as we study this or however long it takes me to work my way through it. But as we go through Philippians, I am going to talk about the subject of gospel friendships. And I'll show you why in a second, but I'm going to talk about the subject of gospel friendships. And again, just think for a moment, which is not in my notes and my planning, but the singing this morning triggered that. Imagine that Paul and Silas in prison singing together, going through the trials together. And you'll see this in the letter of Philippians, that there are a group of, you know, I, I don't want to callously and lightly call them buddies, but there, there are some guys here who are sacrificially invested in the kingdom of God, paying a high price together, and there is a bond around the gospel that shapes what they're doing. I love this. So this is not going to be a hard series for me to preach, because this is what I long for, and this is what I live for. I have no ambition to live my Christian life in isolation and independently by myself before God at all, because Philippians will argue clearly that the joy of the Lord, which is our strength, is experienced together on mission as the people of God. Can I just let you think about that? That the joy of the Lord is experienced fully in Christ as the Spirit works with us together as we follow and live for the mission of the gospel, the kingdom of God. And so this is, one, this is my great delight in life. To have brothers and sisters in Christ who want other people to know the love of Jesus. Who want to sing and savor. To see, savor, and to share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. So I'm just going to read the first two verses. And then I'm going to try to show you that all scriptures God breathed. And so when you read an introduction to uh, scripture, Paul is not just doing a, a common practice, which is to give a greeting at the beginning of a letter. Um, he never just chatters because he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. So everything carries weight, everything has worth in the Word of God. So listen to Philippians 1, 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi and the over, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, friends, I want you at the end of this to have grace and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of Philippians, you should have grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what I want you to um, see in this passage of Scripture is that this is a letter and it is described by uh, many scholars as not just an accidental letter. We often, I mean, we 
text and tweet and twit, whatever we do these days, we do not often write the old-fashioned long-form letters, you know, back in the day. And when you were in the Greek-Roman world, uh, the Greco-Roman world, letter writing was taken seriously. There were classes, there were books written on how to properly write a letter. And uh, there were different kinds of letters that were written. So Gordon Fee, in his commentary on Philippians, does an analysis looking at other scholarly research of the, of the book of Philippians, and he makes it clear from his perspective, and I think there's good ground for it, that Philippians is not just randomly put together. In fact, a study by some scholars, apart from Gordon Fee's, Fee's work, but um, is that it is a very precise letter in many ways. And, uh, you know, there are, there are a few scholars, and I, I, you know, I'm not going to share it or diagram it out for you at this point in time, who see the, le- the letter to the Philippians as written in a chiastic form. And if you don't know what that means, just picture the letter V sideways, or an arrow. And as you read a chiastic structure, the, the, the letter moves... Um, systematically towards the central point. But it's written in parallel form. When you get to the central part of the letter or the central part of a, uh, of a piece of Scripture that's written in chiasm, when you get to the main point, it will start to back out and everything coming out parallels what came in identically. So... Um, I'll, get, I'll just give you a little example so you can see it in Philippians and then show you why that matters at all in our subject this morning. But if you look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul immediately begins with a thanksgiving, and he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine making, uh, for you, making my prayer with what? Joy And a lot of Bible writers and a lot of Bible scholars and, and preachers have picked up on one of the main themes of Philippians is joy. And uh, some call it the letter of joy. And, uh, you know, Chuck Colson did a, not Chuck Colson, um, Chuck Swindoll did a, you know, a pastoral commentary of sorts on sermon series on Philippians. And the title of his series was called Laugh Again. Now, he took it deeper than laugh again, but the idea was that what he picked up on was joy. Now, what I want you to see for Paul is that what gives Paul joy in Philippians is the joy of being in partnership with Christ and with the people of God for the sake of the gospel. It's gospel partnership that he thanks them for. So look at verse 5. Why does he pray continually with joy? Because of what? your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, in a chiastic structure, you'd move towards the central purpose, then you'd move back in parallelism to everything you've said before. So if you go to the end of of Philippians, you should get a parallel to the beginning of Philippians. So go to the end of Philippians, just for a second, and uh, look at how Paul... Right, so he begins by saying, every time I pray, that's how it begins, chapter 1, I give thanks to God with great joy because of your partnership in the gospel. It's, it's working together that gives him joy. 
It's the people in partnership with him that gives him joy. Now look what he says in verse 10 of Philippians 4. I rejoiced in the Lord uh, greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me, for indeed you were concerned for me but had not not any opportunity. And and then he starts to say, I'm not talking because I have need. So this is not a letter saying I need, I need you to help me. He says, God's given me everything that I need. But go down to verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my troubles. I'm just going to stop there and say, you know, you, you know passages of Scripture later in that section. He says, you know what I know? My, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? My God will richly supply all my needs in Christ Jesus, will supply all your needs in Christ Jesus. Why is he saying that? Because they've experienced that together. They've been the means of that together. That's what gives him joy. It's, it's one of the great joys as the people of God to be joined with the people of God in partnership for Jesus Christ. These are his friends. And so that's how Philippians is structured. And I want you to go to the kind of the arrow point, if you want to go there, the V on the, the chiastic structure, and show you what the center part of Philippians is in terms of... By, and there's uh, you know a few scholars who show this, and I think there's some legitimacy to it. Look at verse 19 of chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 19, you get the occasion of the letter. And the occasion of the letter is that Paul is sending Timothy and Epaphroditus to the Philippians. Now, just to give you some background, Epaphroditus was sent to Paul from the Philippians to help him. So the, why is this letter being written? This letter is being written because Paul, we'll see, is in prison, and is, in his imprisonment, the Philippians have partnered to care for him, to help him, to minister to him. And they haven't ministered to him by just sending him a note. They sent him a person. They weren't his pen pals. They were his people. And so they were ministering to him in that and as he, as, and again, I'm not diminishing a letter because he's writing a letter from prison, but letters carried weight. And in, um, in um, Gordon Fee's commentary on Philippians, he says that this actually fits the structure in the Greco-Roman world of what was called a letter of friendship. And a letter of friendship in that culture um, was, you know, there were different kinds of friends in the culture, Aristotle has a section on friends, and he talks about you can have friends who are friends of pleasure. And then he says you have friends who are friends of um, opportunity. They need something from you, you know those kind of friends. He kind of says those are the worst kind of friends. <laughs> and then, he, then uh, you know, Aristotle talks about um, having these uh, deep friends who come in and are the friends who share in common a purpose and a pain. A purpose and a pain. And uh, this is the kind of friend. Now, you know, um, people would, would write letters to one another. There were friendly letters, and Cicero, in his reflection on this, said, you know, that kind of the lamest letter you get are just friendly letters where you talk about the weather. <laughs> How's it going? How are things? Cicero basically said, I don't have much time for those kind of letters. And dignified letters were letters of substance that came and talked about your life. 
what was happening in your life, what you needed in your life, how we had an overarching call and purpose. Cicero and, uh, and these others who are, were interacting wanted to have substantial letters because they wanted to have substantial friends. That's what they wrote about and spoke about. So there was, there were, there were you know, Aristotle had a book, a big section on his ethics was on friendship. What's a real friend look like? So we, we live in a culture of Facebook friends, which means you may have met them, you may be met them at some point in time in your life. <laughs> but you got the whole range, you know, you got this lighthearted, that, you know, if you were in the Greco-Roman world with the philosopher that day, they would go, you know, I, I don't think you'd find Cicero on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, you would not likely find Aristotle unless, you know, he found an opportunity to do their teaching because they were looking for deep friendships that had deep purpose and meaning in life. And so if you go to the middle of, of Ephesians, listen to, or Philippians, sorry, if you get to the middle of Philippians, chapter 2, verse 19, you get the heartbeat of the Apostle Paul. And the heartbeat of the Apostle Paul in writing this letter is, I hope, this is what he writes in verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by news of you. Listen to this. For I have no one like you who will be genuinely concerned, no one like him, sorry, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So he's not just sending Timothy because he's a good courier. He's sending Timothy because he deeply cares. He considers their needs as more important than his own needs. Does that sound familiar to any of you who have been Christians for a while from Philippians? Right? Just track back a little earlier in Philippians chapter 2. Who is the ultimate friend? Jesus Christ. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Jesus Christ, who, although he was equal with God, God did not consider equality with God as something to hold on to as his own, but he emptied himself, right? That language he describes for Jesus, he says he sees in Timothy. So the occasion of sending Timothy is that Timothy would represent the gospel well, that Timothy would express Christ well that he would minister to them deeply. I'm going to take you down a little bit. I'm not going to read all that section, at that central chiastic point in Philippians 2, but let me take you to the end of Philippians 2 in verse uh, 29, because he's sending Epaphroditus back. They sent Epaphroditus to minister to him while he was in prison. What happens is Epaphroditus sent by the Philippian Christians to minister to Paul in prison. You've got to remember the whole background, right? It started with Paul in prison. So their connection, prison, Paul, that all's just that's just that's how they see Christianity. And so they send Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus gets deathly ill. And you go, how they, they weren't able to send an immediate message. Uh, they weren't you know, able to send a video really quick you know, to chat like we do with our families every day almost. That, you know, so they're worried. Is he alive? Is he dead? Listen to the end of Philippians 28. Uh, Philippians 2.28 says, I am the more eager to send him, therefore that you may rejoice at seeing him again and I may be less anxious. You ask yourself, what's Paul anxious about? He's talking about his concern. He says he's concerned about their concern, (laughs) 
right? Because Epaphroditus is sad with Paul because he knows they don't know I got better. And Paul says, I'm concerned for Epaphroditus, even though Paul had needs in prison. He didn't consider his needs as more important than Epaphroditus' needs and the Philippians' needs. So he says this, so receive him, verse 29, in the Lord with all joy. Right? So don't come back and say, hey, we sent you for a purpose. He's going, he just says, just rejoice, he's, he's well. And honor such men, verse 30, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So I just want you to start out by um, thinking about Philippians and the context and the purpose of Philippians this way that what Paul is doing in this letter is he's communicating not a high, the weather's good, you know, how was the fourth for you and your family. He's writing and saying, our lives are on the line. I might live, I might die. Epaphroditus almost died. You're worth it. Thank God, God is helping us. There's depth, there's joy, there's deep, deep friendship. And I'm going to pose this as you're moving along do you know you need deep friendships? Because the truth of the matter is, most of us are defensive because of life experiences against the risk of friendships. Friendships are dangerous. People are dangerous. There's pain and sorrow, right? I want to le uh, read you this little quote from Bilbo Baggins in Tolkien's The Hobbit. Bilbo Baggins, you know, he's about to set out on his journey. He has all his acquaintances from his his shire with him, and he says these words, much to their bewilderment. He says, you know, as he stands up, I don't know half of you as well as I should like, and I like less than half of you as well as you deserve. <laughs> i just repeat that so you can get it. He says, I don't know half of you as well as I would like, and I don't like half of you as well as you deserve. And, you know, when they show this in the movie, of course, they're all... They don't know what to make of it. Did he just insult us or did he just compliment us? And I thought, you know, you should put that Bilbo Baggins quote on many a people's gravestone, right? Because at the end of their lives, what do you say? The end of their lives, I don't know half, as you, half of you as much as I wished I did. What is he saying? I didn't make the effort. If I had more time, if I did it again... I'd realize that people matter. And then he says, I don't like half of you as much as you deserve. Which teaches us what? That most of the time, people aren't worth the pain. And uh, since I don't like you so much, I'm not going to press back the differences, the difficulties. I'm not going to press through those to get to know you. I don't like half of you, he says, as much as you deserve. And you know, the gospel comes and invests, invades, sorry, all of that stuff with us and pushes us deeper into relationship with God and deeper into relationship with one another out of necessity. Not just necessity out of my interests, which are true, but more out of necessity for the kingdom, for the gospel. 
gospel partnerships and gospel friendships are absolutely crucial. So I'm going to introduce you to this, and then we're just going to spend however long it takes us to get through Philippians to think about this. And, and God willing, it'll deepen. God willing, it'll broaden. God willing, it'll encourage us. God willing, it'll change us. It'll change us before we get to the end of our lives and talk like Bilbo Baggins. Is that, is, is that a good, legitimate um, calling? I'll say it is because it's in the Bible. <laughs> All Scripture is written for your profita- profitability. So, you know, let's, let's begin with this. I'm going to give you a quick overview of something that the Apostle Paul says in the letter that I think may be helpful. And, and, and let me just for a moment then. So I'm going to begin with, I have in my notes, um, as my first thing, that friendships are painful. And there's, Paul doesn't hide that. Uh, he, sa- he says in this passage of Scripture that um, friends are painful, can be painful. And so his ministry was costly, and he doesn't hide. This is the beauty of being inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't allow Paul to be silent about his struggles because that's of no value to the people of God as they seek to live for Christ. And so Paul, when he writes to these believers, makes it clear to them that it's going to be difficult. And I want to again just pull back for young people because I think when you're growing up and you're young, you know, there is that shift from, from youth to adulthood where your influences shift from your parents to your peers, right? Friends become valuable. You also discover you don't have that many friends, <laughs> And, and uh, you know, I, so I want to, at least initially, I want to uh, read you Proverbs 18.24. Because Proverbs 18.24 says, A man of many companions may come to ruin. And so you ask me, well, what does that look like? Well, just think spring break in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Right? Having a lot of friends may destroy you. But, he said, there is a friend who, what? Sticks closer than a brother. Now, there's a double meaning there, I believe, as you read your Bible. First of all, there are friends and there are friends. There are good friends and there are bad friends. And there are a lot of people who have a lot of friends. They've got a lot of followers. They live in the TikTok, Instagram crowd, right? But those aren't friends, and they might ruin you. Then there's friends. And there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. That's Christ the chief friend. But that should be who we are in Christ towards one another. So the first thing I want us to see is that in Paul's understanding of friendship, he doesn't ignore the fact that as you're seeking to invest in other people's lives, draw near, be enmeshed, sacrificially engaged in other people's lives, it's not always going to go so well. And that cannot be, cannot be the reason we withdraw. Not because it's not easy to do that, it's easy to do that. Not that we're not tempted to do that, but here's the reality. God has intended you to be deeply, deeply in fellowship with himself and one another. And, and let me just push a little further in this. It's not about you, ultimately. 
It's about a world that spent 4th of July at Big Island in Lake Minnetonka. Drinking and boating and not sacrificing and serving. It's the gospel when people cry out when my phone rings and somebody's just attempted suicide. You go there. What, what kind of friends do we have in the middle of that? What does friendship look like? And it looks a f- lot more rich and meaningful. And what Paul is saying is not, he does not, you will not read Philippians and say Paul's main theme is that friendship is painful. He is saying friendship is joy. Real friendship is joy. But what's our problem? We're afraid of the pain. The pain makes us pull back. So I got James Taylor going in my head. You got a friend, winter, spring, summer. This is for old people, not young people. I guess we could probably make a rap version of it or something. Maybe it'll work better. But, you know. And then we got his ex-wife, Carly Simon, singing. Sorry about that. <laughs> you know, what's her response? I haven't got time for the, the pain. Now, if you actually listen to the words of that song, she's actually singing about love, not pain. Because you, you know, most of us don't listen, so we think, yeah, she's saying, I don't have time for the pain. What she actually says was that at one time in her life, she was a melodramatic queen princess. All she had time was for the pain. That's how the song actually reads. And then love came into her life. Love came into her life. And she actually uses the line, it came down from heaven. I'm not sure what she was thinking when she sang that and wrote that, but it sure fits what Paul's saying in Philippians. Paul isn't saying, I haven't got time for the pain. What he's saying is, the melodrama isn't what defines us. Right? He's not saying that the the Christianity is one crisis after another. That's what drives spouses and children away from the gospel. Because we don't have any meaning, like Carly said, unless there's melodrama. And of course there's no meaning if there's no life, no love, no joy. But if there's life, love, and joy, we got something that's deeper than that. So some people are pain avoiders, and some people dive constantly into the chaos of pain. Philippians is saying there's a better way, and the better way is to dive deep into the love of Jesus Christ. And the joy of the Lord is my strength. Right? That's what... That's what was being sung. So I'm going to walk you through how friends can be a pain, not so that not so that you can shrink back, but so that you will see in this text of Scripture that that's just part of what goes with ministry. So in Philippians chapter 1, verse 15 to 18, Paul's in prison. And as he's in prison, I, I wrote down several kinds of problem friends. Let me just put this. Some of your problem friends are people who profess to be Christians. Isn't that why we withdraw? So (laughs) he's in prison, and he says, this is what I want you to know. I want you to know, he says in verse 12, I want you to know that I went to prison, and the gospel went forward. Now they should know that, 
as Philippians, because in Acts chapter 16, he went to prison and the gospel began. They were converted. The church was planted. So he says, guess what? Guess what? Happened again. I went to prison and not only did I get to go to preach to the leaders in, in, the, in the Praetorium Guard, I got to have kind of elite soldiers guarding me and I was preaching the gospel. Not only did it me, but he said other people began to be bold to preach the gospel because I was in prison preaching the gospel. He said it gave boldness. Now listen to how he writes it. Some preach, verse 15, Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Just think about that for a second. And notice the phrase, because he keeps coming back, selfish ambition. He'll say in chapter 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. So what's happening in Philippians is that he's got some people who are Christian preachers who are preaching out of selfish ambition. And if you think, how does that happen? What does that look like? One of the best places is to read the Corinthian letters. Because Paul has these so-called super apostles who come along and because when Paul is taken out of the scene, these super apostles come in and say, Paul wasn't all that. And they want to get power and they want to get prestige. And, and unfortunately, some of you have experienced that, some people who call themselves Christians are highly competitive in the gospel. They're making comparisons between themselves and you their ministries and their success and your ministries, Paul's in prison. He deserves to be in prison. You know, Paul will say the, he'll give this long description in, in 1 Corinthians, but also in 2 Corinthians, people are saying, you know, he's not that good of a speaker. He's not that impressive. And they begin to point out his faults to feel better about who? Themselves. Now, let me just tell you that that's not uncommon to Christianity. A lot of Christians feel better about themselves by criticizing other Christians, making comparisons, pointing them out when they're down. And you might have experienced that, right? And when you start to see the way Christians can be catty towards one another, can be arrogant, can be a lot like the world, what's your tendency? Your tendency is to say, thanks, but... No thanks. We've had that for any length of time. So there can be rival ministries. There's also religious manipulators. And that can be painful. It can be painful because you see people who are using religion to gain control and influence over people. And so if you look at the end of verse um, 20, or chapter 1 and verse 27 he says let your manner be worthy of the gospel of christ so that whether i come or and see you or i'm absent i may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel that will be reiterated all the way through philippians side by side stand together stand united stand firm get your egos out of the way and get jesus high and lifted up right he's going to say that over and over again Deal with it. But he says, and not being frightened in anything by your opponents. 
And you think, well, who are your opponents? Who's the opponents Paul will address? Well, when you get to chapter 3, the opponents are religious people who come in and begin to, to use their Jewish pedigree to say that they are of some substance, of some significance. And the Apostle Paul says, I'm just going to tell you something. If we're going to start to pull out our PhDs and our religious experiences and float them around like we've got something of substance, I can win that game. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I come from the right tribe, the right people, the right education. I was zealous. Nobody's going to tell me they were more zealous than me. And I'll tell you what I think of that. Horse patootie. It's what he says. He, He doesn't pull back. He puts it forward. I consider it what? Manure. Now, I'm just going to give you a little side information. My wife loves the smell of manure. I don't understand that. In Waconia, she lo- here it is. My wife has this pastor, pastoral, not like me pastor, but country, she likes living near the country. And so the other day, the wind was blowing from the farms out behind us, and she looks at me, and she lights up. She goes, she breathes it in. She goes, I love living near the country. You know, that's what happens when you come from Southern California. (laughs) Everything's different. Sorry, honey, if you're watching. I just couldn't resist that. Paul, when he talks about its manure, he's not saying it's good. He goes, it stinks to high heaven, what they're doing. I have no interest in that whatsoever. Whatsoever. He says, you can have people who come along and it's ego, ego, ego making religious comparisons, and that's enough to turn anybody off. But he says, don't let ego keep you from being humble like Jesus and being a friend like him. There's also just disappointment. Go to chapter 3. There is grave disappointment. Anybody who's been in the church... Anybody who's been a Christian, a parent, a Sunday school teacher, a youth group leader, anybody who's been involved in ministry for any length of time will have to admit this, that sometimes it breaks your heart. Right? And he says, listen listen to what Paul says. He says in verse 17, after he says, "I'm I'm just going for it for Jesus. I want to know Christ. I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I haven't got there yet, but just join me. Let's do this. Let's do this. Let's do it. It's a great letter. It's just a great letter. And then he says this, verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have us. For many of, many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory is in their shame. They've set their minds on earthly things. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now if you read what he's saying there, it seems to me what he's saying is there's some people who have just decided they can't wait for heaven. They don't want to wait for the glory to come. They don't want the cross. They don't want 
the suffering. They don't want the sacrifices. They want what they want. They want ease. They want pleasure. They want pride. They want it now. They want it here. And they've left it all. And he says, I say this with tears. I say it with tears. But he says it in such a way, he says, that's not a reason for you because you've had people you've known. He'll write at the end of his life in his letter to Timothy, people who were with him that are no longer with him. And any of us who've done ministry for any length of time know people who were once with us who are no longer for us. And it grieves your heart. But here's, here's the thing about Christian love. It's worth it all. And more than that, it's worth it all. He's worthy of it all. He's, wor- he's worth it. That's what we sing, right? He's worth it. And so Paul's coming back and saying, yes, you're going to get your heart broken. You're going to pray with tears. You're going to weep. You're going to weep, but it's worth it because He's worth it. And let's help each other finish this race. We need each other. Do you hear what he's saying here? This is not the end of friendship. This is saying why friendship is so crucial because we all want to quit at some point in time. We all want to just say, I've had enough. Just give me a break. Our gods are our stomachs and our appetites. And you need a friend who comes along and says, Brother, it ain't worth it. And he is. We need to help each other. So, you know, one of the disappointments is worldly wanderers, people who, who leave for the world. And the sorrow. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, I love this. So, I, you know, I, so just read Philippians. Just read it. Read it over and over again. I'm setting you up. Just go read it anew and afresh this week. But notice at the beginning of um, uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, he says, Therefore, my brothers, listen to how he describes them, who I love, who I long for, my joy, my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I'm just telling you, this is a friendship letter of the deepest form of friendship. This is depth, love. When was the last time you hand wrote a letter and ever said that to anybody? Right? Under the inspiration, this cannot be false. It comes from the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the mouth of God. So he says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. What's going on here? Here are two friends who have suffered for the gospel with him at Philippi who are fighting now. You ever had Christian friends fight? Right? And you're just looking at it and you're thinking, what does Paul do? He's going, he doesn't say, he actually says their names are written in the book of life. This is not a denial. See, here's the other reason we we don't want to, to have deep friends, we don't want to be deeply involved in each other's lives, is because the more people you get, the more risk of division comes. Somebody said something that hurts somebody. Somebody doesn't say something they should have. Somebody forgets. Somebody fails. You know you know the whole thing. And after a little while, you've got two people who both deeply love Jesus who won't talk to each other. 
And these aren't, these aren't casual people who have a shallow relationship with Jesus. Here's the heartache. These are people who serve God together in the gospel. I've seen this a hundred times. That hurts. And those are all the excuses for not pursuing gospel friendship. And Paul is writing and saying, we ain't going to do that. It's worth it. So let me just take you and show you in the first couple of verses how you, how you are to have, what's the point of gospel friendship. So I want to try to redeem quickly for you what Paul says in the first couple of verses. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you in this text really quickly how we're to see ourselves, how we are to see others, and then how we are to serve others, what we're seeking to do. So how are we to see others, see ourselves, first of all? How does First Timothy, first, sorry, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, how does Paul describe him in Timothy? He says, right, did you have the Kuiper quote there? Did I give you the Kuiper quote on there? Okay, probably not on there. I never know if I, it's on the previous slide. If you go back one, Mike, I should put this here, because right at the bottom of that slide, um, Kuiper wrote, he is your friend who pushes you nearer to God. He's your friend who pushes you nearer to God. That's the point of friendship. So, so here's the first thing I want you to see. When Paul writes this letter as an apostle, he doesn't, and he can, and he does it in other places, but he doesn't begin with his apostolic authority. Like it, He doesn't use the word Paul an apostle, which he does at other times. And times He says, Paul and Timothy, what? servants of Christ Jesus. And it's the word doulos in the Greek, which means a slave of Christ Jesus. Now, all I want you to see is this, is that when you approach the issue of biblical friendship for the sake of the gospel, gospel friendship, gospel partnership, you and I need to realize that we are friends in the gospel because Christ has called us to be friends in the gospel. It does not begin with what we have in common. It isn't what we casually enjoy together. It's not because we have interests that we share generally with one another. God brings very diverse people who would never be friends otherwise together. But where Paul begins with Timothy, as he sends Timothy to minister to the Philippian Christians and deliver this letter, where Paul begins is this, is that we are not our own. We are, what joins us is the lordship of Jesus Christ over our lives. So we are to see ourselves as servants of Christ Jesus. Biblical friendship is ultimately about being a servant of Christ in the lives of others. Gospel friendship is about serving Christ and the cause of the gospel in the lives of others. And so I like this quote um, from C.S. Lewis's Four Loves. It's worth hearing because it's a good way to think about it. If you've never thought about it, you need to start thinking this way. He says, in friendship, we think we have chosen our peers. In reality, a few years difference in the dates of our birth, a few more miles between certain houses, the choice of one university instead of another, the accident of a topic being raised or not being raised at our first meeting, any of these chances might have kept us apart. But for a Christian, there are, strictly speaking, no chances. A secret master of ceremonies has been at work. 
Christ who said to his disciples, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, can truly say to every group of Christians, you have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. Isn't that great? That's Lewis who had the inklings, you know, and uh, Tolkien and, and uh, others that would meet and, and study and write and consider. The friendship is not a reward for our discriminating and good taste in finding one another out. I always think with that when I, you know, my marriage isn't because Marianne had distinguishing taste. <laughs> it's because God loves me. <laughs> it is the instrument by which God reveals to us the beauties of others. God has ordained under the Lordship of Jesus Christ to bring us together. There's no random friendships and connections, and he's done it for his sake. And I would say, to add to what Lewis is saying, it's not simply so we see God's glory and beauty in each other, which he intends to share in this letter, but it's also because he wants us to see Christ in each other, first and foremost. Gospel friendships are sovereignly arranged gifts of God intended to help us see, savor, and to share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. That's God's intent. Secondly, not only how we see each other, how we see ourselves, but how we see each other in gospel friendships. Notice what he says in verse 1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. <laughs> now, that's how he often addresses the people of God. Now, how can I look at you or how can you look at me and say, he's a saint? when we see each other's sins. The only way that Paul can write this, and he does it regularly with regard to the people of God, is that he sees people not through his eyes, but through Christ's eyes. And you and I have a, a gospel responsibility to see each other, not as we are now, but as we are now in Christ. We have an absolute obligation to see us, not in our flaws and our faults. Because that's easy, isn't it? What's his name? We're not to be like Mr. Darcy in Pride and Prejudice who always looks upon a woman in order to see a blemish. That's how he's described. Bad press, but you know. But you know, that's, that's not, it's too easy to walk around and see faults, and it's too dishonoring to the one who bought him with the bought us with the precious his own precious blood. My dear friends, the obligation of every Christian is to see every Christian through the eyes of Jesus Christ. And one of the best ways I'm not going to spend time for the sake of time, but go read First Corinthians one. I put that in my notes here because Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4 to 8, describes, there's that, that verse up there, he describes how he thanks God for the Corinthian church. Do you know who the Corinthian church is? Why he's writing that letter? They're fighting over who's a Paul and who's Apollos and who is Cephas. They're not sitting together at communion. They're getting drunk at communion. And they think their spiritual gifts give them elitist status. Some of them have extraordinary, exceptional spiritual gifts, right? And Paul has to write in the middle of 1 Corinthians 13, you know, in the, near the end, if you've got the tongues of men or of angels and you have not loved, you are a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. You're annoying. Right? You don't have love. 
You can give everything. I, I don't care if you gave the most at Waterbrook for the last 30 years. If you have not love, you have not anything. So he writes them and he tells them in the first chapters, boy, I thank God for you. <laughs> They're fighting, squabbling, bragging, drinking. They're sexually immoral. They're, they're, somebody's got their mother's... I don't know. You're just thinking, this would be a great reason to badmouth the church. And he says, thank God that I see that God's gifted you. I see God's grace in you. I know when he comes back that he's going to complete what he's begun in you, that he's keeping you, that he's going to vindicate you, that your sins are forgiven. I love that. The best, one of the best things you can do if you're frustrated by seeing the sins of, Corinth, of, of Christians is go read 1 Corinthians 1 and ask the question, how could Paul possibly love the Corinthian church? And the answer is that he not only sees himself as their servant in Christ, but he sees them as holy, holy in Christ Jesus. That's how he sees them. Finally, we have to see what the purpose of gospel friendships are. Notice the greeting. And again, some commentators would say this is just a standard greeting. My argument is there's nothing standard in the Bible. He says, Grace, and, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What is it that we are seeking for one another in gospel friendships basically what we're seeking in gospel friendships is to bring gospel grace and gospel peace because we struggle life is hard we need each other we need fresh grace. do you not need fresh grace every sunday and monday and tuesday do you not need to be reminded that jesus is sovereign the world is in his hands that there is peace for all those having been justified by faith we have peace with god through our lord jesus christ paul's writing to christians when he writes that an extended treatise on justification by faith alone through Jesus Christ. We need to be told. Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. Right? And the peace of God. Whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are true. Right? You've got to think about these things. And the God of peace. We'll be with you. We need peace. That's what friends are for. See, the purpose of friendship is that we need a clear commitment to love each other with the love of Christ and remind each other of the gospel. You see, we're in gospel partnership not because it's simply the world that needs to hear the gospel. It's that I need to hear the gospel. You need to hear the gospel. You need to have grace and peace, not from our circumstances, but from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Aaron Menenkoff in a blog post wrote this, Friendship is not an exact science. It's unclear why we gravitate some people over others. We undoubtedly want to be around people who energize us. This is appropriate. Nonetheless, if our standard for friendship is also what someone else can do for us, then the gospel's missing in the relationship. God did not love Israel because of Israel's inherent worth. He simply chose to love them. Shouldn't our friendships be marked by a similar deliberate commitment? 
Thomas Brooks, the Puritan writer, said, Let those be the choice, thy choicest companions who have made Christ their chief companion. The best thing you can do for a friend is to bring them to Jesus. So there's a great story in the Gospel of Luke chapter, I think it's 5, where Jesus has these, Jesus is in a house, the house is crowded, you know the story? And there's a man who's an invalid who can't come to see Jesus and he wants to be healed by Jesus. What do his friends do? Right? They get up on the roof and they, they pull the roof open. So that's a good definition of friendship. Friends are those who will rip the, the roof open if they need to to get you to Jesus. They'll tear down the wall. They'll rip a hole in the roof. They'll get whatever they need to get to get you to Jesus. That's what we do. Because we all need Jesus. We all need Jesus. Do you want to be a gospel friend? If you're a Christian, you don't have a choice. You can't live a full, joyful, peaceful Christian life in isolation. You won't know the joy of the Lord as your strength if you don't know the joy of the strength of the Lord coming through the people of God as we all look to Jesus. Let's pray for that. Together. So Father, on this uh, hot Independence Day weekend, we acknowledge, dear God, that we are so dependent on Jesus. Because our love grows cold, we, we are wounded and weary. We long, dear God, to see and receive the grace and peace of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The world needs to know that there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. In fact, a friend who laid down his life for our sins, for our lovelessness, our selfish ambition, our vain conceit. He died for it all. He did not see equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself and took on human form and was obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so, God, you highly exalted on him and bestowed on him the name above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue would confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. So, Father, draw us nearer to each other so we might be all drawn nearer to Jesus. It's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen. Let me uh, just pray a blessing over you. God, give grace and peace to your people through your fatherly love and through the lordship of the great Savior, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Give us grace, give us peace, we ask in his name. Amen. Have a great day today in the Lord. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.